Welcome to the Arise Church Podcast. At Arise, we're a community of imperfect people, pursuing and experiencing a transformative relationship with Jesus and one another. For more information, you can find us online at ariseonline.org. Thanks for listening. Living and loving God, we thank you. God, we thank you for your faithfulness in meeting here with us each week. I pray that now you would draw our hearts to you, to the words that you would have us to hear, the encouragement that we need spoken into our lives this morning. God, we thank you. We love you. In your name I pray. Amen. Amy Simpson is the author of a book called Troubled Minds. This book has been highly influential and formative for this series. She also is a contributing writer for the publication Christianity Today. And when Amy was 14 years old, she lived in kind of a small town, probably not too dissimilar from Harrisburg, where her dad was a pastor. And at 14 years old, her mother suffered a mental break. At 14, her mother was diagnosed with a schizophrenia. A schizophrenia is a, um, a mental disorder that disrupts a person's mind and their feelings and their perceptions of reality and language. And so when she was 14, her mother was diagnosed with this. She was put on medication. She went into therapy and she saw some progress in her life. She got better. But there were times throughout her illness where her mother, without telling her family, would take herself off the medications, would stop going to her treatments, and then she would slowly regress and she would uh, begin to kind of move toward mental languishing yet again. When Amy was 15, a year after her mother's diagnosis, she tells this story that for most of us would have just been a routine day in our life where her mother came to pick her up from school and then after school she was going to take her to a dentist, uh, dentist appointment just for a routine checkup. But as soon as Amy got in the car with her mom, she could sense that something was wrong. She could sense that something was off. Her mom seemed uh, confused. Her mom kind of seemed distant, and she was worried that they would even be able to arrive at the dentist's office safely. They did arrive at the dentist's office safely. She walked her mother into the waiting room and set her mom down in a chair, and then she went back, and then a half an hour later, she came out. She had had her cleaning. Her mom was sitting in the chair, kind of in the same position as whenever she went back for her cleaning, and she leaned over to her mother, and she said, okay, mom, it's time to go. Her mom didn't acknowledge her. Her mom didn't respond. Her mom just stayed completely still, clutching onto her purse. Amy leans in yet again and says, mom, it's, it's time to go. Her mother didn't move. And so Amy was very familiar with this scene and realized that her mother was kind of in the grips of her schizophrenia that had kind of fallen into a catatonic state. So she walks up in a very bold manner at 15 years old to the receptionist and says, um, can I borrow your phone? I need to call my father so that he can come and pick me and my mother up. And the receptionist looked at her coldly and said, no, there's a payphone around the corner. If you want to use the phone, you need to go and you need to call um, from there. And she said, well, it's just a local call. I just need to call um, my, my father. My mom's having a little bit of an issue and a struggle, and um, we need to ride home. And the, and the receptionist said, no, the payphone is around the corner. If you need to make a call, go over there. Well, she realized that she didn't have any money on her, so she asked the receptionist, can you loan me a quarter uh, to make this call? And the receptionist said, no, I will not loan you a quarter. Please go away, essentially. So Amy walks back to her mom. She has to wrestle the purse loose from her mother's grip. She finally gets a quarter. She goes back to the receptionist and says, okay, I'm going to go make a phone call. Would you please keep an eye on my mom while I'm away? And Amy records in her book that her mom kind of shrunk away in horror and said, is she dangerous? 
And at these words, everyone in the waiting room looked up, looked at the receptionist, looked at Amy's mom, and Amy had to assure this receptionist that she was not dangerous, that she'd be okay. She went out, she called her mom, she came back, and she sat and she waited as her father came and picked her mother and her up, and they went home. This moment in the waiting room for Amy where she said as she sat with her mom, she faced the glares and the stares from those in the room that morning as they looked at her, they looked at her mother, and then they looked at the floor. And they looked at her, they looked at her mother, and then looked at the floor. She said that this typified her experience of what it's like to live in a family affected with mental illness, to feel what they feel, and to experience what they experience. She said that as a family a member of someone with mental illness, that you are looked at often in a way to be feared. As she felt like her mom and the receptionist felt that her mom might be a danger to everyone in that, that waiting room, that they were to be feared and that family members of those who have been diagnosed with these issues are infected by association simply with the person with the illness. And some in this room can relate with Amy's story to an extent and Amy's experience and Amy's emotion. So this morning I want to continue in our Elephant in the Room series and we're going to dip into the story of a man in the book of John who was born blind from birth. And we're going to look at this man through the lens of his surrounding community. We're going to look at this man through the lens of his community or as we can maybe call it today through the, through the lens of family family units that surrounded this man. And as we look at this story, we want to ask ourselves this question, how can we support one another through struggles? How can we support as a community or how can we support as a family one another through struggles, through suffering, through mental illness, through whatever battle we're facing in our life? So John chapter 9, we are introduced to this man who was born blind. And I want to look at these three family units, these three communities that's going to be kind of articulated here through this, these concentric circles that surround this man. At the center, this is the man born blind, the man with the lived experience. The next closest community to him is his immediate family. That would be his biological family. Uh, the next ring would be the family of God. In our terms today, that would be the church. In our story today, that's going to be the disciples. And then in the outer ring is the family that is God. That's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All three communities, all three families to an extent, surrounding the person with lived experience. John chapter 9 begins with this brief phrase, as he went along, as he went along. And so we could read that kind of at a cursory glance and say, okay, so Jesus is just kind of on a casual stroll through Jerusalem, and then he encounters this man. But I'm about to rock your world. John chapter 9 comes after John chapter 8. Let that sink in, okay? And context is very important in this story, especially this as he went along verse that we would just read, kind of dismiss, and carry on with the story. So let's set the tone a little bit. Jesus is walking along. It's the Sabbath. He's just left the temple where he celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles, where he had just said some things about his identity, his relationship with the Father that got him into a lot of trouble, got him into some hot water with the religious leaders of the day. Before John chapter 9, before this, as he went along, verse is read. He was accused in John chapter 8, verse 52, of being possessed by a demon. The Pharisees looked at him and it says, as they exclaimed, now we know that you are demon-possessed. 
Based on some of the claims that Jesus was making about himself, his relationship with the Father, they said, if you're making those claims, you are obviously demon-possessed. And then Jesus responds to these accusations in chapter 8, verse 58, by saying this back to the Pharisees. He said, Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. Before Abraham was born, I am. And this statement, I am, is one of the clearest and boldest claims that Jesus ever made about himself, that Jesus ever made about his divinity, defining, in a sense, his divine nature. Because this is making a clear identification between him and God the Father, because it's drawing back on the story in Exodus of Moses, this story that these Pharisees would have been very familiar with. When Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am, what he's echoing is what God said to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. He says, this is what you are to say to the Israelites. When God is commissioning Moses to go back to the Israelites, and Moses says, well, who am I supposed to say sent me? He says, I am Yahweh. I am has sent you. And so when Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am, he's identifying with the Father. He's saying, me and the Father, we are one. He's making a claim to divinity, to being part of the Trinity, the triune God. And this was blasphemous in the eyes and the ears and the hearts of the Pharisees and the other religious leaders who heard this. And this enraged them. Very truly, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. So how did they respond to this? They responded in verse 58 by saying, At this, at this declaration, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. That's how chapter 8 ends. Then we move into chapter 9. So as he was going along has a little bit different context for us. As he was going along, he had just had a brush with death. He had just slipped away from those who wanted to take his life, wanted to stone him, and he's essentially running for his life out of the temple. Verse 9, chapter 9 verse 1, as he went along, he saw a man blind from Birth. So as he's running for his life, he sees a man blind from birth begging outside of the temple. This man most likely would have been there every single day. The disciples were probably familiar, uh, at least visually, with this man. They'd probably seen him there before. Some of them may have been familiar with his story, known his story, just who he was and his situation. This man that most likely had spent years begging outside of the temple, years stigmatized, years criticized, confined to the margins of culture, confined to the margins of society because of his image. Before we are because of his illness. So before we look at what Jesus does and how Jesus responds, let's think of, responds, let's think about the words that Paul said in Colossians chapter 1 verse 15. Paul in speaking about Jesus, he said the son, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So how Jesus responds here shows us who God is, how God loves and how God calls us to live. Jesus here is the family we talked about, the outer circle, the family that is God. So how is God going to respond to this situation? And how Jesus responds to this situation helps us answer the question I asked at the beginning. How can we support one another in suffering, in struggle, in heartbreak, in brokenness, in whatever situation we Face. Now remember, Jesus is the family that is God. The disciples here are the family 
of God in this story. Let's look at how they respond to this story. It says in verse 1, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. That word saw in the Greek is very, very important. It comes from the, it's the Greek word adon, which is the, a, a form of the Greek word arao. Now, it, we could read this and think that Jesus is making his way out of the temple and he just, in a passing glance, sees this man. But this word arao or adon has a very specific and important meaning, meaning for us today. This is not a, a passing glance. This is a stopping. This is a taking in of this man and his situation. Arao means that you see someone and you see their situation You see their context in such a way that you allow that person and their story to impact you, to move you, and to essentially change your trajectory. And we see that in Jesus' story here. He's had a brush with death. He's running for his life. And his trajectory, wherever he was going, was changed in the Adon, in the Arao, the seeing of this man in a situation, arao means to feel what they feel, to have deep empathy for what their situation is, to consider their story, and to seek to understand their pain. So when Jesus sees this man, he feels all of those things, and he allows this beggar who's been blind from birth to move him and to change his course. Jesus, running for his life, is still looking around for those who are hurting and who are vulnerable. This is God. This is the image of God. This is how we are to live and to love as followers of the way. So that's how Jesus responds. Now let's look at how the family of God, let's look at how these disciples respond to this man's situation. In chapter 9, verse 2, the disciples say this. He says, His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? Who sinned that this man or his parents, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So they see this man, they see this beggar, they see a situation that he's blind, and the question they ask was, well, what caused this? Who sinned that this man was blind? Was it himself or was it his parents? So Jesus, God, sees this man, he takes in his situation, and he is moved, he is slowed. He has stopped. His trajectory is changed by what he sees. The disciples, they see this man in his situation, and they want answers. They want to, in a sense, control this situation. They want to put a bow around it. They want clarification for why is this man like this. More importantly, they want someone to point their finger at. They want to find blame for why he's in the situation that he is in. Isn't this often how we approach suffering? Isn't this often how we approach suffering when we see people hurting or when we see a situation like what happened in Paris last night? We want to look for someone. Who can we blame? What people group can we blame? What person can we blame? What part of their story can we put a finger on to blame for what they've done? And this is essentially what the disciples are doing here. And the problem is with suffering, what makes suffering so difficult and why it hurts so much is because it doesn't make sense sense. The worst thing about suffering is found in the fact that it doesn't make sense. The worst thing about suffering is, in fact, it's like very irrationality. I was reading a blog yesterday, and we don't have the notes on the screen because I just kind of stumbled on this 
yesterday as I was kicking around this idea in my head about just how suffering seems so obtuse and how it doesn't make sense whenever we see people going through it and whenever we maybe are experiencing suffering. And this blogger wrote this. She says, as a Christian community, I feel like most of the time we push past suffering. Not when we suffer, but when others suffer. We push past suffering. We don't want to know the details. We don't want to share in the suffering. We explain suffering away using two or three well-placed Bible verses out of context as painful jabs. I'm not saying you or me. I'm saying we. I've done it. When we follow God, we experience a strong craving for everything to make sense. Strong desire for everything to make sense. And this is what we see in the disciples and their response here is they're trying to make sense of this situation. This man who's been born blind, they want a reason for it. I think so often for us is that we want a reason for suffering in our world or suffering in our life. If it is a mental illness, if it is depression, if it is OCD, if it's an addiction, if it's anxiety, if it's whatever, we want to find a reason for it. We want to put a bow on it and we want to be able to move on. And what's hard is in suffering, you can't always understand why people suffer. And so when you sit with someone who is suffering, that's why so often we get anxious. We feel, we feel anxiety because we don't have an answer for them. We don't have a reason for why they're suffering. And so we get anxiety because we feel like we need for it to make sense. And the disciples here are essentially saying, Jesus, balance this situation out for us. Tell us it's fair. Tell us that his life, living in the shadows, living in the margins, is fair because of something either he did or something that someone else, that his parents did. God, give us a reason for his suffering. And when we see suffering to this degree, it prompts us so often to say things like, you know, this must be a part of God's grand scheme. Just hang in there and you'll see. You'll understand. Or, you know, all things work together for good. Uh, Dr. Diane Langberg, who wrote a book called Counseling Survivors of Sexual Abuse, is a, is a Christian. She's also a therapist, and this book is incredible. And she has this, this excerpt here that we don't have on the screen. Again, I found it yesterday, so I apologize for that. But listen to what she says about this approach to suffering, this approach to engaging those who suffer. She says, suffering in and of itself is not good. It is wrong. It was not intended to exist. Death is not good. Abuse is not good. Violence is not good. Sometimes as Christians, we sound as if we think it is good. We sit across from indescribable suffering and glibly pronounce that all things work together for good to them that love God. Listen to what she says. Now, do not misunderstand. I believe that verse with all my heart, but it is not a glib verse, and it does not say that suffering is is good. It does not say, don't worry about what you are enduring. It will all turn out nice in the end. It does say that the God we worship is capable of redeeming the deepest agony, the most hideous suffering, the pain beyond words into something that gives life to others and brings glory to him. But make no mistake, the transfiguring of agony into redemption cost Jesus inestimably. Death does not normally transform into life in this dark world. God's redemption worked out in the life of one of his children always costs. The beauty of redemption in a life never 
comes easily. The question that the disciples ask here, who sinned to cause this man to be this way, reflects a a popular theology of their day because there was this belief that there was this correlation between physical sickness and sin. Now, there's some truth in that. Sin does impact us at every level of our life. Sin does result in the breakdown of all relationships, a relationship with God, relationship with ourselves, relationships with others, and relationship with our creation. When we sin, we do create a separation between ourselves and all of creation. But many believed that people in the first century had a particular illness because of a particular sin in their life or a particular sin in the life of a family member. So the disciples' question of when, if this man was born blind, when did he sin was a perplexing question for them. Because if they believe the popular theology of their day, that sickness, that physical illness, that um, abnormality, blindness, maybe being deaf or whatever, was a result of sin, and this man was born blind, then when did he sin? Did he sin in the womb? And for us today, that just may sound, it sounds absurd. But what they believed in the ancient Jewish world, that if a mother was pregnant and she walked into the temple of a pagan god and she bowed down in this temple in an act of worship or she made a sacrifice or an offering to that pagan god, then that was sin and the baby that she was carrying was also accountable for that sin. So when they saw a child who was born with a birth defect, they would often assume that that is what had happened that the mother had made an offering or the mother had worshipped a pagan god while carrying this baby. So these guys asked this question, when did he sin? Was it, was it in the womb? Did his mother do something like this? Or was it, was it because of something his parents were engaged in long before he was born? Is it a result of their sin? And they're just left wrestling with this question, trying to find an answer, trying to get an answer so that they can move on and they can escape engaging with this man in his suffering. So I want to transition now to kind of explore the stigma surrounding this man culturally, this man with blindness. And we see the stigma later in the story still not lose its grip because, spoiler alert, Jesus steps in and Jesus heals this man of his blindness. And as this man is celebrating the work that the Messiah has done in his life and that he now has sight, sight that he's never had for his entire life, we still see the stigma at play in in holding his heart, or not his heart, but the, the people around him their minds, and their hearts. Because we see that the Pharisees, after he's been healed and he's recounting the story and showing them that he has been healed from this blindness, they're essentially yelling at him after this. In John chapter 9, verse 34, it says, to this, to this story, to this healing, this miracle that this man had experienced, they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. They didn't care that he had been healed. They said, who are you to lecture us? You are so broken. You are so evil at a core level. You should have to deal with what you deserve because of whatever sin is in, was in your life or whatever sin was in the life of your parents, essentially saying that what Jesus did for this man was unfair, and they threw him out of the temple. Let's put ourselves in the blind man's shoes for just 
a moment. This man who had spent years begging at, this, at, the, at the temple, this place where uh, day by day you would see a lot of foot traffic, maybe the most busy place in all of Jerusalem. So he, he put himself in a particular place for a particular reason because he knew that people would be coming in and out and he would have the opportunity uh, to get the money that he needed just to survive another day. He put himself there at this high traffic area with hopes to be seen that someone would see him and that maybe someone would drop a coin his way or maybe someone would give him a bite of bread to eat. So he hopes to be seen, but because of the cultural stigma, he realizes that that visibility, that being seen with this illness, came with a cost. It came with a very, very powerful stigma. It came with judgments. It came with stares. It came with stigmatized comments like, what must he have done? What sin must he have engaged in? What sin must his parents have engaged in that this would be his life? Imagine the pain of this man who was born this way to have to endure this day after day, needing to be seen because it was his only chance at survival, but knowing that if he were to be seen, that he's going to be judged sitting outside of the temple, literally begging for his life as life passes him by day by day by day, which is the reason that many people in this situation in the first century in the ancient world chose to take their life because they believed that it was simply better to be dead than to live. And this is actually what the culture believed. Ben Sirah, who was um, a second century BC, a Hellenistic Jewish scribe said this. Ben Sirah's, whose writings highly influenced the Pharisees at Jesus's, in Jesus' day, said this. My child, do not lead the life of a beggar. It is better to die than to beg. Or as one Greek dramatist wrote, you do, no, you do no service to a beggar by giving him alms, by giving him food or drink, because you lose what you give him and you prolong his life. So culturally, the belief was it's just better to be dead than have to live a life like this. So imagine, if you can, consider, if you will, the mental anguish that this man must have felt knowing this cultural stigma, knowing that most who passed him by, who went into the temple, wished that he were dead than be begging outside taking what they had earned, the money that they had earned, the food that they had acquired, that his life, or he would be better off dead. Jesus, in John chapter 9, verse 3, says this, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. In this response, Jesus refuses to acknowledge or reinforce the belief that there is a simplistic connection between sin and sickness. And this is good news for us some 2,000 years later. This is good news for us today because if you or a loved one that you, that you know suffer with a mental illness, it does not mean that it necessarily it is a punishment for personal sin. If you are a parent who has a child that has fallen a victim to addiction or has had a mental break, it doesn't necessarily mean that you committed some grievous parenting sin that put them in this place. Jesus refuses to acknowledge this popular belief of his day, and he goes on to say this in verse 4, but this happens so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. The disciples 
in their response, they're asking questions about the past. What happened in the past to make this man this way? But Jesus, in his response, shifts their thinking from the past to the, to the future. In suffering, it's important for us to not theologize about the past or about the why that this person is in the situation that they're in or for us to sit and wonder why are we in the situation, why are we experiencing the pain, why are we experiencing the suffering in our life that we are experiencing because of this response from Jesus where he shifts the focus of the disciples from the past to the future and where. Instead of like what and why, Jesus shifts the, fo- the focus to the future and where, essentially asking the question, where can we, as the family of God, as the family that is God in Jesus, where can we see God at work in this? But there's something else I want us to notice about this text. Go to the next screen here, which should be this image of this ancient Jewish or Greek text. So this is actually um, a, a Greek transcript of this exact portion of scripture. And what's interesting to note about the ancient Greek text that we took and we translated to make our scripture here today is that as you can see, they were all it was written in all capital letters. There's no punctuation, there are no periods, there are no commas, there are no lowercase letters, all capital letters, all like one giant run-on sentence, like a giant, like never-ending hashtag. And this is what the Bible translators had to deal with whenever they would translate the Bible. What's interesting in this text and what we can see here is that this phrase, but this happened, is actually not in the original text. This was added in after the original text in translation. Your translation may say something different if you have the ESV or KJV or whatever it may be, but it essentially says something to this effect. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. But but this happened was not in the, the original text. And why this is important is it because it might be easy to read this text and say, well, so God set this up. God made this man blind. He ordained this moment so that Jesus could swoop in and that Jesus could heal this man of his sickness and take all the credit and God would get all the glory. But it leaves us with the question of why would Jesus, why would God create a situation like this where this man would be living a life where he was suffering, begging day by day outside of the temple, not knowing if moment by moment he was going to survive, realizing that people in his culture would wish that he was dead rather than living. Because at a cursory reading of this text, but this happened, it can lead us to that belief. And if we're honest about that, and we think that that's what this text is trying to imply, It leaves us with kind of a maniacal, like almost evil God that he would ordain this level of suffering, that this level of grief. Go to the next slide here. So let's consider for a second if we extracted that, but this happened from the text. So if we just took it out, the top verse here is what it would look like. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. So we pull out, but this happened, and it doesn't necessarily change the text all that much. Remember, ancient Greek had no punctuation. Um, There were no spaces in between words, just one giant run on. Let's consider this translation and see if it affects our reading at the bottom. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. New sentence. So that the works of God might be displayed in him, 
as long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. You see the shift? You see the difference? Neither this man nor his parents sin, said Jesus. So that the works of God might be displayed in him, as long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. If we read the text this way, it shifts their focus from the why to what are we going to do about it. God has allowed us to be in this moment, in this situation together, facing this man, seeing his pain, seeing his grief. How are we going to live and how are we going to love with this reality sitting before us? Because if God set all this up, but if we read the but this happened and God created and ordained all of this to happen, then why do we need to do anything at all? Why do we need to engage the situation whatsoever? Jesus here is saying, don't worry about the why. Don't worry about the past. Focus on me and focus on, focus on we. What are we going to do with this man and his situation and with the reality of his suffering standing before us? So it leaves us with this question, how can we as a family, how can we as a community, how do the disciples in Jesus in this situation intervene, and how are we therefore called to live? After saying this, he, Jesus, spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told them, wash in the pool of Siloam. So the man went and washed, and he came home seeing. Jesus makes mud out of spit, which as a kid was like literally the grossest thing I had ever heard in my entire life, puts it on this man's eyes and then tells him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. At a very basic level, what we see here is that Jesus doesn't let stigma, Jesus doesn't let ignorance as to why this happened keep him at a distance. Doesn't, let, doesn't allow him or keep him at a distance with the disciples staring pondering, pontificating on why this guy is in this situation, trying to kind of tie up loose ends intellectually. The first thing that we see out of this is that Jesus acts immediately. Jesus sees the situation, he responds to the disciples' question, and then he acts immediately. He doesn't make him, make him sit through a 45-minute gospel presentation or lecture him about who he is. He acts immediately. So for us today, what this means and what we can learn is so much from this text is that Jesus leads with action and he leads with mercy. Now, the gospel words, the gospel story comes later on in this text, but it comes after Jesus acts. And what this does for me is it informs my desire for our church at Arise. My hope is that at Arise, we can become a place of healing and mercy in community where people who know the gospel, where people who don't know the gospel are met with compassion and are met with loving action that seeks to alleviate suffering and restore all broken relationships in the name of Jesus. That we, like Jesus, would act in mercy, act in compassion, and do so immediately when suffering is before us. That that is how a family of God responds to suffering. The second thing is just this uh, the oddness of the mud. 
for us in the 21st century with Western eyes. It just, it seems kind of odd. Why would Jesus spit and rub mud in his eyes? But culturally, it makes a lot of sense when you understand the culture of the day. Um, the way we can read this, the story of the mud, is that we can read today that Jesus uses medicine in this situation. Now, hang with me. This gets a little bit weird. In the ancient world, there was this belief that people's spit had medicinal value, especially when it came to sight. They believed that there was a medicinal value to spit, or some of your translations may say spittle, and that it had medicinal value and could help people, especially with issues of sight. So Jesus used this spit, he used this mud to communicate his intent to heal this man, both through miraculous means, but also through medical means. The mud here is also maybe a symbolic tip of the hat to the, the creation story where God created Adam out of dust. And is Jesus making a sign of the new covenant, saying that I am ushering in a new era, that there's a new covenant that comes along with me. But for the bigger picture for us today is that Jesus is blending common medicine, what was believed to be common medicine of the day, and divine healing. It tells us that medical science and faith are not at odds. It's not an either or or discussion. It's a both and. Jesus here holds them both and in his muddy, holy hands. And the last thing is so beautiful. Jesus empowers this man. What does he do? He makes the mud. He puts it on his eyes. And then he says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. What do you think would happen to a beggar's sense of power in the first century world? A man that had been forced to live his entire life outside of the temple or in maybe other parts of the city begging day by day. What would that do to their identity? What would that do to their sense of worth and their sense of power? It would leave them feeling powerless, feeling fully dependent on others. For us today, Jesus' response in sending this man to wash in the pool of Siloam means that as we engage people who are suffering, who are hurting, with whatever it is in their life, reaching out means helping people take ownership of their healing journey by empowering them, giving them a, a jump start, maybe, as it were, where Jesus gives him the mud on his eyes here. He says, but now it's your turn. I've made the mud. I've put it on your eyes. Now it's your turn. Take a step. And Jesus encourages this man for the first time, maybe in his entire life, he empowers this man to do something on his own, and in his own power. He helps this man shift from his losses, shift from thinking about what he doesn't have, his sight, into acting out of his gifts. He says, okay, I know you're blind, but you still have legs. So let those legs carry you to the pool of Siloam. You still have arms and you still have hands that you can use to wash the mud out of your eyes. And this is a part of of your healing. This is a part of my plan. So go and wash, take some steps. He empowers this man. He encourages this man. 
And for us today, it just helps us understand that we're supposed to take a holistic approach to healing by empowering others, as Jesus did, through encouraging, by shifting people from the things as they're maybe in languishing and mental despair and depression, whatever their struggle might be, away from the things that they feel that they've lost, maybe away from the things that they feel um, that they don't have, a relationship that is gone awry, whatever it may be, to the things that they do have and encouraging them and empowering them to take next steps of healing. Jesus says, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, so that the works of God might be displayed in him as long as it is day. We must do. We collectively must do works of him who sent me. As the family of God, we are to live and we are to love and we are to serve and we are to care like this. As long as it is day, as long as we have life, as long as we have this moment, we're to do the works of the one who sent us, Jesus. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Paul in Galatians 2.20 says this, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Jesus says, I am the light of the world, and where there is light, darkness can't exist. Paul is saying that as believers, as followers of the way, as disciples who are being formed into the image of Christ, that Christ lives in us, and because Christ lives in us and has purchased us and has redeemed us, that we are called to live, to love, to go and serve in the same way that his son did. So as we end today, I want to end with a, with a conversation, with a story of someone who's walked an interesting journey, who's, who's struggled in various parts of their life, who has wrestled with something I know is a, is a common struggle for many mothers in this room, um, and I thought it was appropriate on Mother's Day to talk about this. So welcome with me, Jen Kerf McMath, to the stage this morning. Jen, come on up. Thank you so much for being willing to get up and be vulnerable before this church. Um, and as I told you before, that there are people, they don't know your story yet, but they are going to be blessed by it, the work that God's done in your life. And even though it's been a, a painful journey, that God's redeeming yes. it and God's using it. Um, so you have a particular story to share with us as it relates to postpartum depression. Um, but before we get into that part of your story, tell us a little bit about uh, your life leading up to having your first kid, maybe struggles that you had had as a kid or a teenager or, or a young adult in, in terms of mental health? Um, there were several things that's happened in my life that I have caused depression and anxiety. Um, I've been seeing a counselor since I was about 10 or 11 years old. Um, many things, many people in and out of my life that um, where I've held abandonment or things that just have happened in general, I, I have dealt with it. Um, anxiety and depression I, for a long time. So, um, leading up to the kids, you know, having them, and it was just a walk that I didn't understand, but yeah, I was going through. So you've had three kids. Yeah, you've had three unique experiences. Um, yes. Not only in parenting, but in your struggle with postpartum depression. Yes. 
Um, tell us a little bit about your experiences with each of the, each of the kids. Um, all three of my kids were born by C-section, um, and the first one was an emergency C-section, but I was really young with my first one and in a very bad situation, um, so I really didn't understand what postpartum was, and I was told that it was just the baby blues, you'll get over it, don't worry about it, deal with it and suck it up. Um, my second and third one, um, those two kiddos are very close together, so they're about 21 months apart, but um, I started understanding what postpartum was and um, kind of, you know, the symptoms and everything, and after my second one, um, I knew that's what I had had with my first one. Um, I would sit in the hospital and have panic attacks and just sit and cry, and when I've had visitors, my hu- I'd have to say to my husband, you just, I need everybody to leave. I can't, I can't handle it no more. It was, it got really bad. Um, he was really good through it, but he didn't <laughs> understand what was going on. Yeah. Um, and with my third one, he ended up in the NICU for 10 days. And that was the worst case I had that, out of all three of them. Um, I had a one and a half year old and my oldest was 10 at that time. And I remember just sitting there just crying and in the NICU and not understanding why I was crying or, I mean, I had all the reasons, you know, there's your child's not doing 100% and you can't take care of your other ones, but this was just kind of over the edge. It was really, I wanted to call, crawl in a dark hole and I wanted just to, I didn't want to talk to anybody, I didn't, I, I just wanted to go away and um, it was scary. Sure. And you said with your third child that depression lasted pretty in a pretty t- intense way for three for years. Three years. Mm-hmm. So how did that make you feel as a mother? What feelings <laughs> were you wrestling with? Um, I felt like the worst failure ever because I, I I didn't want I wanted to be near my child, but I wanted them in the same room on the other side of the room where I could just see them. And I didn't I liked holding them and cuddling with them, but then I had. Or if I didn't put him down, I felt like it was going to hurt him. Um, and it was scary because I felt like I was supposed to be in this, what society deems as this pure mother of bliss and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> but um, I wasn't there. And so I felt like I was failing because I wasn't enjoying the the first moments and everything like that, which I did. I had my times where I did, but um, I had to force it. I had to force myself to get to that place. Um, so you said feelings of shame and yes. frustration because there's this cultural ideal and yes. you're just not even remotely feeling the same thing, which just deepened yes. the darkness of your depression. Yes, you and uh, I couldn't leave my youngest with my husband because all he wanted, he wouldn't feed for him. All he wanted to do was nurse and that added to it quite a bit. I'm like, I just need a break, and I couldn't get a break. Um, and my one and a half year old was a complete mommy's girl, so she was always attached to me, and it just kind of everything started kind of compiling. compiling and when he was my youngest was three, I finally, I finally broke, and I remember, <laughs> I remember being in the in our bedroom and just screaming. And why? Why am I going through this? I gotta, I've gotta get help. So, what did this sleepy feeling about God? I was mad. 
I was really mad because I thought I was supposed to be not the perfect mom, but a mom that was at least enjoying her kids and enjoying the the first few moments because they're only little ones. You don't get any of those moments back. But I was mad. I was I didn't understand why I had to go through this and I felt stuck. So we talked a lot in the message this morning about stigma, cultural stigma in the first century, but um, you and I, as we chatted this week, we were talking about the, the stigma surrounding postpartum depression or depression in general. That stigma, how did this impact how you wrestled with this, how you journeyed with this? Um, back when my kids were little, the idea of depression and anxiety and postpartum depression was so taboo that you didn't dare bring it up. It was just, oh, here's a pill, you'll just get over it. Um, you know, having a safe place or a safe person was just, you know, you just get over it type of thing. And that was really hard for me because I knew I needed to talk about it. I knew I needed to get it out. I knew I needed just, I needed to fix this. Not necessarily just fix it, but just start healing. And uh, the first time I went to my doctor, they are just like, oh, here's a depression pill, you'll be fine. No, that's not what I wanted, mm. but that's what it was. And so I with my third one, I was scared to death to say anything about it. Right. So. I was talking with my wife, and I don't know if she'll care if I share this or not. <laughs> the life of a pastor's wife. You're <laughs> welcome. Uh, but uh, with our oldest, Colton, she, she struggled with postpartum depression, had never had depression really in her life, but she didn't know what it was. And she didn't want to talk to her about it. And she wasn't until maybe a year later she told me about what she was experiencing, and that shame and that frustration and all that anger toward God and, and everyone because of this, these feelings that she had and this darkness that was in her life for the, for the very first time. And stigma you know, obviously doesn't help with that. But you said with the third baby there was, this, there was a shift in how you decided to journey uh, with that baby. What happened? Um, I, I was just praying for something. just Because in the past I had a really close relationship with God and then through circumstances, I kind of went away, but I was just praying, just bring something. I just I need something. And then at that time, I was doing daycare, so I had a mother invite me to a mops group. And uh, so I reluctantly went because <laughs> I didn't know what I was getting myself into, mm-hmm. but it ended up being one of the biggest blessings. There was a, a mom there that I met um, who struggled with it a lot, and she became a, a mentor to me and uh, really helped me and strongly suggested I started seeing someone and talking to someone and um and that's when I got connected to a counselor and kind of started slowly weeding through stuff and um and I have so I through that though I have found a couple of safe people and um that I can go talk to and talk to about it and stuff like that and that's helped a lot and just knowing and strengthening my relationship with God has also helped tremendously too because I hear more of the positive I am statements instead of the negative I am statements and that's helped me bring me out of it um, which is not easy and I'm still kind of going through but um, I'm starting to realize the reason why I was going through that journey. Sure. Well it just reinforces what we talked about this morning of the you had a mom a mentor mom from your mops group step in and, and essentially live in love like Jesus. Mm-hmm. Come alongside of you. You're not alone. I'm going to walk this road through you. I'm going to help you, encourage you to take whatever next steps you need to take by seeing someone. So kind of with that in mind, what do you wish, what do you, wish you had known? And maybe what are some 
things that you would share to new moms or soon-to-be new moms in, in the room as it pertains to this. But I think it would also be universal and, and kind of be applicable to, to everyone. Yeah. Just don't be afraid to reach out. And those, find someone that you trust, even if it's a doctor. If they tell you something, you know, here's a pill to get over it, don't and you know that something is stirring in you and that that's not right, don't take that as an answer. Reach out to someone. Find your, your safe place. Find your people that you're, um, you can talk to. And reach out to God. That's one thing I really have learned to do is just lean into God. And, and if your loved ones, this is, more, this is really important too, that for me, my loved ones, my husband and everything, they really started digging into and saying, my neighbors and stuff too, that we have become family of, something's not right, Jen, I'm going to go with you, and we're going to get this figured out, and it was nice to have, I didn't like them at that time, <laughs> but my, um, they've become some of my biggest supporters. That's awesome, so, yeah. that's awesome, that, what you said about the, the I am statements is so powerful, mm-hmm. like, yeah, in, our, in ourselves, in our humanity, and our depravity, we are broken, but we're being redeemed and renewed into the image of, of Jesus, and it's so important, especially in, in the teeth of suffering, uh, to to remember to remember that. Thank you so much for sharing a bit of your story uh, here. I know it's hard to put yourself out on the, the chopping block like this, <laughs> but I know that it's important and it's valuable and that there are those in the room that need to, to hear the message. So this morning, as, as we kind of wrap up here and the worship team can come back up now if they want to get in position, I, I hope that we were encouraged to live as, as children of the light where Jesus said that I, as long as there is day, we are to do the works of the one who sent us and that Jesus said the reminder that I am the light of the world and I am means we are because Christ now lives in us and that we are to live and we are to love and to be light in darkness, light in dark situations that may be seasonal because of having a baby postpartum, maybe a part of your journey all together that as a community, that we are to rise up around that and that we are to support and we are to love in the midst of that. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful today that you are a God who seeks and desires to restore that which is broken. God, that you, through the giving of your Son, took the step to restore the broken relationship because of sin that we have with you that we have with this creation and with others. So God, but in our day-to-day lives, in our day-to-day relationships, and in our soul and in our spirit and our mind and our body, that you're still at work in that same way and you still desire uh, to restore us. So Father, I pray that as a family of God, as um, others on this journey of life, as followers of the way of your son, God, that we would live as he lived, that we would love as he loved, and we would care for those around us who are hurting, who are broken, who are going through seasons of life that maybe we can't relate with, that we've never struggled with that, God, but that maybe they just need a listening ear, that God, as your son did, that we would act immediately, that we wouldn't stand at a distance, we wouldn't judge, we wouldn't try to um, point a finger as to why this person is in the situation that they're in, why they're experiencing broken relationships, why they suffer with addiction, but just to simply step in and say, none of that matters. What matters is I'm here to help you. I'm here to empower you. I'm here to encourage you through the love of Jesus Christ. So Father, may we go from that, from this place today, believing that and living that. In your name we pray. Amen.